And if you need a Bible, just uh, raise your hand and the ushers will drop one off. They're making their way right now so that you can follow along with us in our study. Revelation chapter 1. Someone asked me tonight, when are we going to get into the rest of the book? (laughs) I don't know. No, probably uh, one more week in chapter 1 and then, you know, we'll pick up the pace. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I'm getting a lot out of chapter 1. Let's read together from uh, verse 10 all the way through verse 13. What? Actually, let's read through verse 17. You just lost a week. No, I'm just kidding. John writes and he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one, like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first, and I am the last. In the tenth chapter of Mark's Gospel, the story is told to us of a certain man who came to Jesus looking for answers. And we're told there in Mark's gospel that he was a ruler. We're not told of what. We only know that he possessed a certain degree of authority, that he had some power under his name. We're also told that he was young, that he was in the prime of his strength. He had his best years in front of him. He hadn't yet been gripped by the pains of fatigue that come with old age. He hadn't yet come to that point of midlife assessment or regret looking back and wishing he had done things differently or come to that place of the looming absoluteness of death, you know, that feeling you get like, wow, this isn't going to last, you know. We're told he was young. And we're also told that he was rich. That he had attained to that which most people spend their entire lives chasing after. That he had financial freedom. That he had the ability to possess without fear or worry of debt or the things that are associated with it. He was a ruler, he was young, and he was rich. And yet, though he possessed these three things that most people spend their whole lives chasing after, He saw something in this man, Jesus, that he knew that he lacked, but yet he knew that he wanted. And so he came to Jesus, and Mark chapter 10, verse 17 tells us that he asked the question, he said, Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He had three things that almost everybody lived their whole life chasing after, youth, power, and wealth. And yet, though he had those three things, he knew that he lacked life. He didn't have life. See, now youth, the people spend their 
time chasing after the vitality, the energy of youth, the strength and vibrance of, uh, of having that in them. The authority, importance, prominence, ability, stature, wealth, enjoyment, pleasure, comfort, stability. All of these things have contained within them a promise of giving to you life. That, that, that you will be able to experience life to a fuller measure if you possess these three things. The problem with those things is that they don't last. They're not eternal. Youth fades. Authority comes and goes. It's taken. Wealth grows wings and flies away. It doesn't last. And those that possess or attain unto those things, also with those things, gain a gripping fear of their fleeting, fading, temporal nature. That they don't last. And so though you attain those things that you seek after, then after you get it, you're gripped with a feeling that, how am I going to maintain it? How am I going to hold on to it? Because you know that they don't last. And so though those things may fill and satisfy for a season, they stimulate a deeper hunger inside of those that attain to them for something that lasts. And it's only Jesus that can give us something that lasts. Only Jesus can give us life in its fullest in a way that it will not fade away, but it will be sustained. In John chapter 17, as Jesus prayed, just before he went to the cross, the prayer, only John's gospel records the prayer that Jesus prayed. And in chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, Jesus uttered these words. It says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life. And here he tells us what eternal life is. What it consists of. That they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Notice that he didn't say, this is how they attain eternal life. Or this is how it is grasped. Or even, you know, describing it in any other way. But he says that this is what it is. That it is to know you. This is eternal life. To know you. And to know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is what it is to have eternal life. Something that lasts. Something that gives vitality. Something that gives strength. Something that is fulfillment. That is satisfaction. But that doesn't fade away. It's lasting. And he's not speaking of just a, a term or a period of time. But rather he's talking about a quality of life. It's age abiding life. Literally. It's life in its fullest form. And it's life that lasts. And it's interesting that it's quality. is not in its youth. It's not in its position or in its intrinsic possessions, but rather it's found simply in just knowing the true and the living God. That life is found in knowing Him. That that's where we'll find our sustenance. And that is what lasts. In our study last week, we took on the question, how is God found in this way? How is this life discovered? How do we enjoin ourselves upon it that we might be partakers of this life that Jesus only can give? How does revelation happen? How do we have God revealed to us, not simply the God of the Bible, or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the God of old that created the world and laid its foundation, but rather the God of me? How do I know God? How do I have God revealed to me in such a way whereas I can say, like John would say in 1 John, that which I have seen and heard and my hands have handled of the word of life, that declare I unto you. See, many of us, we can say, well, yeah, we know about the word of life. And we can testify about the things the Bible says about this God. But for many of us, it isn't what our hands have handled. 
and what our eyes have seen and what we ourselves have tasted and experienced of the word of life. But listen, that is where life is. Life isn't simply contained in the volume of the book that we study or in the knowledge that we attain or in the religious duties that we do. But it's in our personal experience of knowing and experiencing and fellowshipping with Jesus Christ. That's where life is. And that's what God has called us into. Not a religion or a class or a bureaucracy or a gathering. But he's called us into fellowship with himself. But how is he discovered? How does God reveal himself? Well, in our time last week, we're not going to belabor the review But he first of all discloses or reveals himself through tribulation. The trials that we face, just as Jacob who laid his head upon that rock and saw God revealed and said, surely God is in this place and I knew it not. And it's oftentimes in our tribulation that we look up and we say, wow, God was in this place and I didn't know it. He's also revealed in adulation. That as we worship Him, as we spend time before Him in in isolation, in solitude, in worship, in praise and in prayer, you discover that He inhabits those things and He's revealed there. As John also witnessed and, and experienced on the island of Patmos. And that also in submission. That as we yield ourselves to the ways, the precepts, the ordinances, the will of God, that as we yield ourselves and submit to His ways, we find that He's revealed in those things, that we find that, that though it was so contrary to the way we would have done it, yet God was in that as well. So in tribulation, and adulation, in submission, and then tonight as we pick up in verse 11, we find that Jesus is also revealed in the congregation. He's revealed in the congregation. Again, if you would look at verse 11. Jesus comes to him, the the voice sounds and says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Unto Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot. There are many people that view church, you know, church, church attendance, a church meeting, Sunday morning routine, ritual, church, you know. Many people view church as nothing more than a religious observance. Or more so, maybe even as a religious requirement. As though it's kind of in the terms and conditions of this salvation covenant that we enter into. Okay, well, I'm saved now, so I go to church. You know, people say that to us. We share with them and they say, well, yeah, you have to go to church on Sunday. You have to go to church. You know, that's just kind of the rule. It's what you have to do. And many Christians look at church that way. Some view it as a superstitious investment. That I'm going to go to church so that God will then bless me. And many will say, you know, I've noticed that the weeks I go to church, those weeks are just a little bit better. And so I go to church just because I want to make sure. I want God with me. I want Him to bless me, protect me. I want Him to help me. So I go to church. It's a superstitious investment to them. Some look at church or the church as simply just another business, a not-for-profit business, of course. But it's a revenue-generating thing. And maybe for a good cause or a certain cause, but nevertheless, it's still a business. They're measuring it in power by the numbers of people, the quality by the strength, and you know how much money is coming in and all that, the rest. You know, but for all the different things that people view church as, There's very few people that see it as the place where Jesus walks and reveals himself among his people. Where Jesus walks in the midst of his people and reveals himself there. When John hears the trumpet here, as he's on the island of Patmos, he hears a voice. And in verse 11, he's told again to write what he sees in a book and to send it unto these seven churches. Then, he tells us, as he turned to see the voice and to 
find out what this was that was happening, what he was experiencing, the first thing that he sees there are seven golden candlesticks. And that one was walking in the midst of those candlesticks. So he sees this menorah. If you can picture it, there's usually one around here somewhere, you know, but this menorah. But big enough that you can see and, and picture in your mind Jesus walking in the midst of it, intertwining, wrapping himself around, if you would, weaving in and out of, of these candlesticks, walking in the midst of this place that Jesus is right there. Well, well what is this? If you look down at verse 16, not only is he walking in the midst of it, but it says in verse 16 that he had in his right hand seven stars. So not only is he walking, but he has these stars in his hand. Well, what's going on here? The seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars in the hand of the Son of Man? What is this? Well, verse 20 gives us the answer. If you want to know something about the Bible, you just got to look it up in the Bible. It says in verse 20, it says that the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. So, these seven golden candlesticks that John sees are symbolic. They represent the church. The seven stars that he holds in his right hand are the angels or the messengers to the seven, you know, churches. So, wait a minute. You, you mean to tell me that there's more going on here than simply just a Bible class? That when I come to church on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or a, a midweek Bible study or a prayer time or, or, or any time that I'm gathered together with other Christians, there, there's more going on than simply what we see outwardly? You, you mean it's more than just a, a business with patrons and services and revenue generation and all the rest? It's more than just a bureaucracy with bylaws and belief systems and a doctrinal statement. It's more than a superstitious system of observance and going through the motions and observing these commandments. What John is telling us is that Jesus himself lives and moves in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That as the church comes together, he moves and he intertwines. He wraps himself into the meeting, what's going on, and he reveals himself there. Remember when you were a kid, I do, in kindergarten? One of the first things that you learn, remember? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door. Yeah, see all the people. There it is, you know? And that's kind of what you're taught. And I remember my parents, you know, dragging me to church as a little kid, you know, putting spit on their hands and combing my hair and, you know, dressing me up in these horrible clothes and bringing me to this place. And, and you know, you do what kids do. And so you start bouncing in your chair and you're like trying to, you know, you're playing with the stuff and the thing. And you're, you, know, you get smacked and they say, this is the house of God. You're like, the house of God. Okay, God's here. You know, and so you're like, I don't, want, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to make God angry. So, you know, you're in the house of God. And it's this big ornate building with marble and, you know, all these different things going on. Well, this is God's house, you know. And then you, you grow up a little bit more and somebody tells you, hey, did you know that the church is not the building? And you go, wait, what? The church isn't the building. My whole life, the church was the building. No, the church isn't the building. The church is the people. That it isn't that God inhabits the building as though this is his temple and that God lives here. And if you want to see God, then you come to God's house just like you would go to your neighbor's house. But no, the Bible says that God dwells amongst his people. Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 27, and he talks about this glorious mystery that we have in Christ. That, that this glorious truth of the church and the Holy Spirit within us is that it's Christ in us. It isn't that God dwells in the temple and that if we want to go meet God, we come to the temple and we bring our offering. But this new covenant relationship that we have with Him is that His Spirit comes and lives inside of us. That He moves in and takes up His residency within us. And Jesus said that the simplest form of the church, Matthew chapter 18 verse 20, is that where two or more are gathered in His name, that He is there in the midst of them. So it isn't a building that we go to, you know, the church, the steeple, and the people. But rather, it's simply where two or more are gathered in His name. 
It says that he is there in their midst. And that's exactly what John sees as he sees this vision of this candlestick and the one like the Son of Man who holds the seven stars within his hand. Well, you say, well, I've been to church, but I've never seen Jesus. I've spent a lot of time sitting in pews, listening to Bible studies, but, but how exactly does this work? What does it mean that he reveals himself within the congregation, that he walks amongst the candlesticks? Well, first of all, as John just simply shows us right here, is that he reveals himself, first of all, through the word that is heard. Again, in verse 11, Jesus tells him, I've got a message, and I want you to write the message down, and then I want you to deliver it to the angels of these seven churches. Verse 16 tells us the stars are the angels. Verses 19 and 20 says that these things are to be written for their purpose. And then as you just turn the page and look over at chapter 2, and you see the seven letters to the seven churches, they all begin the same way. Unto the angel of the church of... And then, you know, the next one, unto the angel of the church of... So you see a message coming from Jesus being delivered to a messenger, and then being given to the church. Now you say, the angel, what does that mean? Now the word angel is simply, in the Greek, the definition of it is very simply a messenger. And I know the picture that you get in your mind is that there's kind of like a blonde-haired woman with wings and a white gown that is kind of in charge of all the different churches. You said, I knew a woman was a church. No. No, but see, the, the picture is that it isn't an angel in the sense that we think of like Gabriel or Michael, but simply there, it's, it's a messenger. Now, nowhere in the Bible ever, at any time, does God give a message to a man and say, give this message to the angel, please. It's completely out of order. It's always God giving a message to an angel to go and give it to a man. Always throughout Scripture. And for that reason, many have said, well, this isn't an angel in the sense of, you know, like we think of... The, you know, the minister of fire that God, you know, stands before the throne of God. But rather, the angel of these churches is the messenger to these churches. Or the pastor, or whatever. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you calling yourself an angel? Are you saying that Bobby... I knew Bobby was, was different, special, but an angel? No, listen. We're not angels. And nor does any pastor or messenger to any church have any special connection, you know, a direct line where, you know, I've got this phone at my house. It's like, that's God's line. And when he wants to talk to me, you know, I'm going to study. So I just pick up this special line and, and he speaks to me. No, it doesn't happen like that. Any pastor or messenger of God is just a person, a human being like anybody else. But we've responded to the gifts and the opportunities that we've received from God. And we've kind of ended up with messenger ministries. And that's how God works. He moves. And that's why we teach the Bible. Because the message is all here. It's all in the Bible. There's nothing new that's revealed. It's simply for us to seek the Lord. And we trust that as we study, and that as Christ lives within us, and as He holds the messenger in His hand, the star, that He's going to give forth the message and the word that He wants to give to people so that He might reveal Himself to them in their lives. And God speaks and reveals himself through the message that's given. That even now, the Bible teaches that God is revealing, that God is speaking, that there's something supernatural about the word that's being preached right now in your life. And it isn't about me or any other pastor, but it's about Jesus and the word that he wants to give to you and his ability to communicate from a spiritual realm into a physical realm and give you the ability to receive it and respond to it and be changed. Many times I'm asked, did my wife talk to you? Did, did she tell you what was going on in our house? Because you said stuff tonight that there's no way that you could have known about it except someone told you about beforehand. I say, no, she didn't talk to me. I don't know what you're talking about, but if God's speaking to you. Other times I have people talk to me like they think I know what they're talking about. They'll, they'll come up and they'll be like, yeah, you know, I'm really going to do that. And I'll be like, what? They're like, yeah, what you were talking about. And I'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they'll say, oh, you know, okay. You know, and, and then maybe they'll fill me in like, like as though I knew. Because God spoke that personally and that, that you know, uh, specifically to their situation. 
You know, and, and God speaks. I remember, you know, one of my first weeks as a Christian, Georgia, my wife, she wasn't my wife at the time, but she got saved before I did. And I was asking a lot of questions. And I, and I said, well, what's the deal with church? And she said, you know, it's amazing how God can speak through what you hear when you go to church. She, she said to me, she said, you know, just, just this week, I remember I was sitting by myself and I was thinking, you know, I, I really don't need church. This is what she was telling me. She said, I don't really need church. Because I just find it easier to just get alone with God and go for a walk or something and, and have God speak to me. You know, why do I have to go to church for? And she said that Sunday she went to church and as she was sitting there in the pew, the pastor said, you know, sometimes you feel like you don't even need church. <laughs> you just feel like if you just go off in the woods, you know, you'll experience God in a, in a fuller way. And she said, God spoke to me. He showed me that He was with me, that He was hearing me, and He spoke to me through the Word that was being taught that Sunday morning in church. I remember, you know, in those early days, going to church and going through all the struggles of a new believer, kind of living in that college age of life, you know, and kind of bouncing back and forth between, you know, what was going on on the weekends and the college scene and what was going on in church and Sunday mornings. And going, how do, I, how do I figure out how to break free or what I'm supposed to do in all this? And I remember going in one Sunday morning, one of the first times I ever went to church, and the message was on Daniel's three friends who were told that they needed to bow down to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar erected. And as the pastor preached, he looked at us with loving eyes and he said, listen, church, you don't need to bow down to the king of beers, to King Budweiser. And, and the Lord spoke to me through the word that was being taught. He met me right where I was through the word that I was hearing that Sunday morning. And he delivered me from that bondage, from that life, from that cruelty that I was under. He reveals himself through the word that was heard. You say, well, Nick, is, is that true in every church? I mean, is that true, every, is that true when I turn on TBN? And I see the guys asking for money for the gazillionth time. Is it true when I pull the envelope out of the pew in front of me and I see a spot for my credit card number? You know, so that I can, you know, Nick, is it true all the time? Listen, here's when it's true. It's true when the word that you're hearing is rooted in and also verified by the word of God. If what you're hearing is biblical truth, and it can be proved biblically, and it's sound theology biblically, and it, and it resonates biblically, then yeah, you could say, well, this is from God. It's, it's scripture. It's what's already been spoken. Also, if the spirit that's within you bears witness that, yes, this is true, that it isn't esoteric, that it isn't kind of out there, that it isn't like, I don't know, you know, that sounds kind of weird, it rubs me the wrong way, I'm not really sure. But no, the Bible says that He's given you His Spirit, and that the Spirit knows the mind of Christ. And so when you're hearing something that's true, the Spirit of God within you is going to resonate, and you're going to say, yeah, it's true. It's kind of like when, remember, I know it's a bad example, but remember when Delilah was trying to get it out of Samson? What's the secret of your strength? And he kept lying to her. Yeah, it's, you know, ropes. It's fines. You know, oh, you just got to... And, and all these things. But then when he told her the truth, when he said, it's my hair, it says that she knew that he told her the truth that time. Even though she had been lied to six other times, she knew that time he told the truth. And it's the same kind of thing, that when you're hearing spiritual truth, there's something that resonates inside, and you know that you're hearing it. So that's when it's true. You know it's true when it magnifies and exalts Jesus Christ. When it isn't about any man or any ministry or any work or any grandiose thing, but when it's about Christ and about magnifying Christ, it's true what you're hearing. And when you hear something that's giving light and direction to your path, that's how you know that what you're hearing is from God. It's in the word that you hear. And He wants to reveal Himself to you, and in Him we find life. And that's why it's so important to hear the word. I encourage you, when you come to church, come expecting to hear from Christ personally. Come expecting that He's been walking with you through your week, through your life, that He knows the meditation of your heart, He knows the questions and the musings of your mind, and that He wants to answer, and that He has spoken to a messenger, and that He has something to say to you. I promise you, if you come to church with that mentality, 
It will take on a whole new dimension for you. Come expect it. But he doesn't just reveal himself through the word that is heard as the congregation comes together. But he also reveals himself through the unexpected encounter. Look again at verse 12. It says, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of them, one like unto the Son of Man. Without making any mention of the seven stars or even of the message that was given to them to pass on to the church, we see that Jesus was walking in the midst, not in the front or behind, but in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And I find, personally, many times, Christ is revealed to me, not just in the word that's preached through the pulpit, but in the interaction that we have as Christians, as believers, whether it be in the solid ground, or whether it be a passing conversation that we have before you know, the, the Bible study, or after, at, at any time. If it was just in the message, or in the messenger that Christ is revealed, then there is no need for us to come together, especially in this day and age. Because you can just get the CD, or you can just listen to Christian radio, or you can log on to the internet, and at your leisure, you can just listen to the message that was given, and Christ will reveal himself fully. But it doesn't work that way. Because there's a certain and very definite dynamic that takes place when we come together, and Christ reveals himself through the fellowship of the saints. Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, says, Out of the mouths of babes you have ordained strength. That sometimes strength for you will come out of the mouth of someone who maybe is a baby in Christ. Jesus, quoting the same verse in Matthew chapter 21, verse 16, says that he has perfected praise. That his praise, his habitation is sometimes revealed through the mouth of a babe. Someone where you least expect it. Jesus shows up and he speaks to you directly or reveals himself to you profoundly through someone who you never expected in a way that you could never have imagined. And most times I find that it isn't the polished preacher that brings me to Christ, but it's the unexpected encounter as I came to church waiting, hoping for Jesus to show up. I think of Simeon and Anna, two people that you'll be hearing about a lot in the next couple months. You know, Christmas is upon us, and you'll be hearing the, the nativity story over and over again. And these two people, Anna and Simeon, they went to the temple, they went to the synagogue on what would otherwise be just another ordinary Sabbath. And they came there and there had something welling up within them. They had a desire in them to see the Savior. They, they wanted so badly before they died to lay hold of or see with their own eyes who would be the Messiah the one who would save Israel from their sins. And on that unexpected day, they had an unexpected encounter as they went into the synagogue. It just so happened to be the day that Mary and Joseph were bringing Jesus to be dedicated to the Lord. And as they came there bringing their two turtle doves, the offering that would be offered, and to have him prayed for and dedicated there to the Lord, first it was Simeon who saw him. And as he saw him, it says that by the Spirit of God he was brought and he hoped that the salvation of Israel would be revealed to him as he came. And he took the baby in his arms and he began to prophesy over him and it says that he rejoiced because he saw Christ. Jesus was revealed to him that day, that unexpected day. And then just a few minutes later, in walks Anna. Another one, an elderly woman who waited upon the Lord night and day that wanted God, that had a hunger for Him. And on that day when she least expected it, there was Jesus in the midst of the people. And He was revealed to her. Yes, now that's a literal experience that they had. But it speaks to you and I of what can happen as we come to church, the congregation, expectant that Jesus would reveal Himself. There He was, a man who for His whole life was crippled. He was a paralytic. His hand was withered. And for that reason, he was limited and kept back from coming into the, you know, the greater stage of fellowship there in the synagogue. But yet, he still was one who said, I'm going to come into the congregation because I want to be where God is revealed. And on that unexpected Sabbath, 
he had that unexpected encounter where Jesus just happened to be in the place. And it says that Jesus beheld the man in the withered hand that he had. And he called him forth to stand up in the midst. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And on that day that could have been any other Sunday, Saturday, sorry, where he would stay home perhaps because there was too much to do around the house, Jesus was revealed to him and he was healed in a way that otherwise would be impossible through the physicians. It doesn't just have to be in the temple or in the synagogue either. I think of those two that were on the road to Emmaus. Jesus had gone to the cross. He had been buried in the tomb. And all of their hope of deliverance from the yoke of Rome was dashed. And as they walked on that road to Emmaus, their faces were gloomy. Their hearts were heavy. And a man joined himself to their company. A man whom they didn't know, they didn't recognize. And as he joined with them, he said, why is it that as you walk along here, you're sad and your countenance has fallen? And they looked at him and said, what, are you a stranger in Israel and you haven't heard of the things that have happened here in these days? How that this Jesus, who was supposedly the Christ, who was going to deliver us, who he was and what happened to him? And the man looked at them with a smile and he said, haven't you read in the scripture how that Christ must need suffer? And rise again. And then it says that he started with Moses, which means Genesis. And all the way through the law and the prophets, he explained to them Jesus through the scriptures. And as they came to the place where they were going to stay for the night, they compelled the man to come in and stay with them there in the inn and lodge with them that night. And as he came in with them, as he made as he would keep going, they sat down and they broke bread. And as they broke bread, their eyes were opened. And they realized that it was Jesus. And then he disappeared. Just like the Lord, right? Mysterious. Glorious. And it says that they got up. And in the same hour, they went back. What took them seven hours or eight hours to do. As they were sad. In one hour, they went back in excitement and jubilation. That the Lord had been revealed to them. But it was an unexpected encounter. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he expounded to us the word? I think of Lydia, who every Sabbath day would just go down to the river where people would come together and pray. There wasn't enough male Jews in that city to establish a synagogue, so they would go to the river and pray. And that one Sabbath, this woman Lydia goes to the river and there's Paul. And he preached unto her Jesus, and her heart was opened, and he was revealed to her that day. See, sometimes it's not the word that we hear as we come and listen, but it's through the encounter that we engage in as we come, and Jesus is revealed to us in a way that we could never have expected or imagined. It happens all the time. It happened to me last week, last Wednesday. See, I'd been praying, really praying, really seeking the Lord and asking God for an answer doesn't matter about what you'll never figure it out never know but as i prayed i i said to the lord i said lord please don't remain silent in this thing and i said lord please i'm i'm asking you please lord resolve this by the end of the year and and literally my words because sometimes i pray in king james i know that that's weird to some people but I, i just said lord even by year's end please that that was my exact words lord even by year's end please And I even took a little post-it note and I wrote down that sentence so that I would remember, even by year's end, please. And I tore it out and I put it in a place right where I would always see it. So I'd remember. And last Wednesday night, it was after service. And one of the brothers came up to me and he said to me, real quick, he just goes, hey, Nick, he goes, wouldn't it be great if Jesus came back by year's end? And and at first I was just like, yeah. Then I was like, wait, what did you just say? Did you just say, by, people don't talk like that, by year's end? Now listen, listen, listen. I know you're going, are you saying, no, no, listen. I did not take away from that at all, that Jesus is going to come back by the end of the year. But here's what I did take away from it, is that he heard me, that he's with me. And that he sent that unexpected encounter, that unexpected brother, to say something in such a way where no one else would have a clue, but for me, I knew that the Lord was with me, that he, he was speaking to me. And that's how it happens. See, sometimes it's the unexpected encounter. Come to church, 
to give and to receive Christ through the unexpected encounter. Revelation happens in the congregation. It happens. It's true. Also, number five, not just in the congregation, but revelation also comes in observation. Look with me at verse 12 again. He says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one, like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Now, we have talked in, in previous studies about the various reasons why people come to Christ, came to Christ when he walked on the earth. You know, some people came because they were curious. They heard about what was going on and they wanted to know more. Some came because they wanted healing. They had some need that they knew that only Jesus could meet. So they came to have their need met. There were some that came because they wanted to see miracles. Always, always will attract a crowd when miracles are taking place. Jesus himself said that some were coming just because they got bread. They needed dough, money or something. You know, they came to Christ because they had some need. They were hungry. There were some that came for the teaching. Some came for political change, and they thought Jesus was the avenue whereby that would come. Some came simply to stir up controversy. There was a religious controversy surrounding Jesus, and they loved that. They fed on that, so they came. They were around. Some were with him because they wanted prominence, power, preeminence. And there were some that came to him sincerely, genuinely seeking forgiveness. They were guilty. And they heard that there was one who would forgive sins. But there were very few of all the people that came to Christ, and for all the different reasons, there were very few that came to Him simply and for no other reason other than to just know Him. They wanted to know Him. They wanted to figure Him out. They wanted to look at Him and understand Him and know Him in a real way. But we find that the people whose lives were changed that Jesus made a difference in them, are those people that came for that reason. You think of Mary of Bethany who came. She didn't care about serving. She didn't care about anything. She sat at his feet and she heard his word. And we find that her life was changed. The Apostle John, another one, followed him all the way to the cross, regardless of the persecution that he himself would endure. He wanted to know Christ. That's why he came. And we find that he was profoundly changed. He realized that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. They looked at him, they observed him, they handled him, they tasted him, and the result of that was that their lives were changed. Isn't that what we're told to do all the way throughout Scripture? To observe him? To look at him? What did John the Baptist say when he first came on the scene? The forerunner for the Christ. The first words he said as he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, or look, the Lamb of God. Look at him, behold him, examine him, realize who this is and what he's doing, what his purpose, his mission is. Realize, look at him, behold him. The writer of Hebrews declares to us that our eyes, as we run this race, as we walk through this life as Christians, that our eyes are be set upon him. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That the way that we're going to grow and succeed and thrive in this thing called Christianity is as our eyes are fixed and focused upon Jesus, as we observe Him and look at Him for who He is. Again, in Hebrews 11, verse 6, the writer says that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. See? And that's what we're called to do. Now listen, all of what John sees here, that we read in these four verses, that he observes of Christ... You know, the one who walks in the midst of the candlesticks, the girding about the chest, the clothing with the garment, the head and the hairs, the eyes of fire, the feet as though they burned in brass, the, the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. All of those things that he saw are real. He wasn't making it up. It wasn't words that were spoken, but that's what he saw when he looked and observed Christ. 
But at the same time, they're all very symbolic and they speak to us of who he is. What is it that we discover when we look at Christ? When we observe him, not coming to him because we want something or because we need something or because it's exciting or there's a crowd or there's any other reason. But when we come to Christ and say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to see you for who you are. What do we discover? We see what John saw. But first of all, the very first thing he tells us as he observed him is that there was one who walked in the midst of the golden candlesticks, that there was one like unto the Son of Man. If you're taking note, the first thing that he observes is that he was one. That there was no other. That he, Jesus, is absolutely unique and unlike any that have ever walked the earth or that ever will. He is completely separate and holy. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 describes him this way. It says, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Sometimes we think that God is like us, or that God is like a man. That he's keeping score keeping tabs on what we're doing, that he's holding our guilt over our heads and that he's keeping a record of what we've done like Santa Claus. You know, he's got a list and he's checking it twice and, you know, that kind of a thing. That that that's the way he is like we are. That he's setting conditions upon the favor that he promises to give us. That if we walk right and, you know, if we're upright and we do our spiritual chores and all the rest, that, that then he'll be with us like a man. Or that he's making us earn or work for the favor that he has. We think that God's like a man oftentimes. But the Bible declares otherwise. It says that he is not. It says that his love is unconditional. That his favor and his grace is irrevocable. And that nothing, nothing can pluck you out of his hand. He says that we're the apple of his eye. And his promises to us are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. They are not conditional. They don't waver or change. God doesn't have good days and bad days, good moods and bad moods. He is altogether and completely separate. And there is no man like that. There is no person on the face of this planet that can hold a candle to his holiness and his righteousness. And any person that ever puts hope or trust in another person is going to be let down. Wife, if you're looking at your husband hoping for that unconditional perfect love, I promise you, you're disillusioned. You're going to be upset. You're going to regret. You're going to find yourself frustrated. And you'll feel lied to. As though you looked for something, you were promised something, and given something completely different. He cannot love you the way you want to be loved. But Jesus can. Husband, it's the same thing. Employee, as you listen to the promises that are given to you of that perfect boss... Or boss, as you look across the table of that person who is the perfect candidate for this position. Listen, there is none like unto Christ. And you can put your hope in Him because He is one. There is one who walks in the midst of the candlesticks who is completely separate from all others. And John sees that as he looks. The second thing that John notices is that he is clothed with a garment down to the foot. It's interesting that he tells us, he goes out of his way, not just to tell us that he was clothed with a robe or clothed with a a garment, but he says that it was clothed all the way down to his foot. He tells us that his body is completely covered. Now let me ask you, scripturally, symbolically, who is the body of Christ? The church. We are. You and I. We are the body. Many members, and yet we are one body, and Christ is the head. And here, John, as he sees Jesus in the midst of the candlestick, it says that he's clothed with a garment down to the foot, that he has his body completely covered. The Bible speaks of nakedness as shame and vulnerability. And I don't know about you, but I think the thing that I fear the most, if I fear anything, not fear, so I'm not going to act tough. The thing that I fear, though, most is probably vulnerability embarrassment, shame, to look like a fool or to be thought of as a fool. I I hate that feeling, that nakedness, that vulnerability of being exposed. And I find myself praying constantly, Lord, please just cover me, cover me, Lord. I'm such an idiot and I say such stupid things. Every time people come over to our house, when they leave, the first thing I say to George is, did I say anything stupid? 
you know, and she's always saying, well, no, but please don't pull the hair out of the food. Just eat it, you know? <laughs> you know? I have a million stories I could tell right now, but I'm going to demonstrate perfect love and withhold them. Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. It says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Three different words for sin all speak of different degrees or types of sin, but the Bible says to us, you and I, that we are forgiven. That He has covered our sins. Not by His garment, but by His blood. Psalm chapter 103 verse 12 says that he has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west and that he remembers them no more. Now, that is so different from us because although we can forgive, we'll never forget. The people that have burned us, the people that have wronged us and harmed us, we can forgive them, but we remember. But God, in his power, he chooses to forget and he has the ability and the power to do it. And he says, I've cast sin as far as east is from west. Why east from west? Because they never touch each other. North and south have a meeting point. Those things will come back together again. But it says that he has cast our sin as far as east is from west from us. And it will never come into his mind again that we ever even sin. He's chosen to forget it. He has covered it by his power and by his grace. In Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, God speaks to his people and he says, Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. He's covered us. His body is covered. The third thing that John sees is that he's girt about the paps with a golden girdle. You say, whoa, that's kind of crazy. What's this? Golden breastplate. When Moses, in Old Testament times, was given the pattern for you know, the tabernacle and for the priestly garments, the high priest was to wear a golden breastplate on his chest. It was part of his attire. And upon that breastplate were to be two things. Jewels and also the names of the children of Israel inscribed. And what it represented was his people, that God's people were to be close to his heart. That's what the priest thing was about. And God spoke to Moses and he said that everything you make, make it according to the pattern of what you saw in the heavenly. So when Moses made the garments and the attire of the high priest, he was modeling it after what he saw taking place in heaven. Who's the high priest of heaven? Jesus. And what does our high priest, our Lord, have? He has the names of his people inscribed close to his heart. And he sees them as jewels. He knows us by name. And we're close to his heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. says that we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But that he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That he isn't just, you know, someone who's afar off that can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he's got us close to his heart. And he's entered into our sufferings. He understands our temptations and our struggles. He's been in the fires of affliction. And he's able to help us there. He's got us close to his heart. The fourth thing that John sees is in verse 14, it says that his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. Now, the head, of course, throughout the Bible, always speaks of authority. And hair, quite practically, is what comes out of the head. Right? You know, And it tells us that both his head and his hair is white as snow, as white as wool. That his authority that he has, whether it be as King of kings and Lord of lords and his authority over all creation by right of creating it, or whether it be his authority over our lives personally that we have placed within his hand, that all of it is perfectly pure. Now, we all know what a despotic leader is, a tyrant, a Hitler, a despot. We understand that. We know what tyrannical authority is. But the Bible says that his authority, his head is white, it's pure. And what comes out of it? 
the hair being white as snow. Well, what comes out of the mind? What comes out of his authority? The Bible says that he is perfect wisdom. And that there's perfect counsel and perfect direction, perfect authority that comes from him. Psalm chapter 23 says that he is a shepherd that leads. And James chapter 1 says that he gives wisdom to those that ask. The prophet Isaiah declared in chapter 30 verse 21 that you shall hear a word behind you saying this is the way, walk ye in it. That he is a perfectly pure king and he gives perfectly pure counsel. When King he- We're almost finished, I know it's time. But when King Hezekiah got word that the king of Assyria had him in his sights and that he was going to take him down, the king of Assyria sent this letter to Hezekiah. And he wrote this threatening thing saying that no God, no deity, no army has been able to deliver the people out of my hand. And he said, I'm coming for you. I've got you in my sights. And King Hezekiah took that letter and he brought it into the temple of God and he spread it out before the altar of God and he prayed and he said, Lord, behold now their threats and the things that they say against us. And Lord, are you going to let this king, this despotic ruler, bring his threat against your people. And the Bible says that God was pleased with the prayer of Hezekiah, that Hezekiah didn't look to his right hand or to his left. He didn't look to his alliances or his allegiances, but he looked up to the Lord of hosts. And as Hezekiah brought that letter in before God, God heard his prayer. And that very same night, God sent an angel into the camp of the Assyrians and he killed 185,000 of their men. And the king of Assyria tucked his tail and he went into the temple of his idol. And there his sons found him and his sons slew him there and his empire was demolished. Why? Because a man realized that it wasn't the counsel that he would receive on his right hand or on his left, but it was what he would get from his authority, his king, whose head and his hairs were white as snow as white like wool. Several years later, another king in Israel, King Asa, would be faced with a very similar situation. A threat would come from his enemies. And rather than looking up to the Lord, he looked to the right hand and to the left. And he looked to the king of Syria to help him. The allegiance that he had, the alliance. And the prophet Hanani came to King Asa. And it's that famous scripture we all know in Second Chronicles 16 verse 9 that says, Listen, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the face of the whole earth, looking for those whose heart is perfect towards him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. And sure enough, King Asa was overthrown. He lost in the battle. Why? Because rather than looking up in that time that he needed counsel, in that time that he needed wisdom because he was faced with an impossible situation, he leaned upon the things that he could see and understand, and it became his ruin and his demise. Many times, Christians, we get threatening letters in the mail, don't we? The bills come. The mortgage payment looming over us. The threat of foreclosure, of disaster. The legal notice. The vain threat of being laid off or of being affected by a bad economy. What do you do? Do you look to the right hand and to the left? Do you look to counsel from the counselors of the world? Do you turn on the you know, business channel on TV and figure out what's the best way to position yourself and strategize about how to work through these tough times? Or do you spread it out before the Lord of hosts and say, Lord, it is nothing with you to help, whether it be by few, by many, or by those that have no power. You can do all things. The Bible says that God is pleased with such things and that he gives wisdom to those that ask. I ask you tonight, where do you turn? Do you turn to the one who is your head, your authority? The one whose thoughts towards you are perfect in number and that cannot be numbered? They're more in number than the sand? Or do you look to those on the right hand and on the left? We're out of time, but you can go through the rest of these things that are listed here in these next few verses. and I'll let you fish out for yourselves those things as you have the opportunity to behold Christ. To look at Him and to see Him. Next week we'll look at verse 17 and we'll look at what happens. What happens to you and me when we see Christ? When He's revealed to us? Not, it's actually not going to be next week. Next week's Thanksgiving. Two weeks. In two weeks, we'll look at what happens and we'll wrap up chapter one. But as we close, and 
musicians can come. Realize, church, this. That right now, Jesus is walking in the midst. That right now, Jesus is here. He's in this place. He's weaving in and out of these aisles. He sees every heart that's here. He hears every thought. He sees everything. Nothing is hidden from Him. Jesus sees tonight the one who's hungry for what lasts. For that thing that isn't temporary, that won't fade away and wear off and eventually die. And He sees the one that tonight is saying, I want something that's eternal. I want to experience what life is all about. I want to touch and taste and handle what's real. And He sees that heart here tonight that's hungry. He sees as He moves through our midst, He sees the one with the withered hand. The one who some area of your life has been crippled for years for some reason. Maybe it's just because of the way you are. And He sees you and as He moves to the midst of this place tonight, He wants to heal. He wants to do a work in your life. He sees as He moves amongst us the one who has a broken heart. The one who's been abandoned. The one who's been crushed. The one who's watching areas of their life just simply fall apart, seemingly fall apart maybe, but not in truth. He sees the one here tonight who's the doubter that says, yeah, it's a business, it's a bureaucracy, it's nothing but a club like the Elks or the Moose Lodge. Tonight he wants to save you, he wants to reveal himself to you. And he sees the afflicted, he sees the one who's desperate, who says, Lord, I need you to move in my life. I need you to work in me. I want you, Lord. And he's waiting for you to call upon him. I encourage you as we sit, stand and sing this last song that you would allow the Spirit of God to move in your heart. You would allow Jesus to walk in your midst and to revolutionize your life. May he reveal himself to you in a living way. Let's all stand.